0: Well, it's my privilege to open the Bible for you this morning, and uh, as I said to the earlier uh, Q and A group, uh, we brought the weather with us from Alaska. That's for sure. It's been colder here than there, and so God truly has a sense of humor to say you thought you were going to get the sun, but you'll have to wait. Um, this morning, I'm I'm really. Just wanting to express my gratitude for your hospitality. Judy and I have been blessed uh, to be with the body of Christ all week long and to have some time together. And we're exploring God's will together for our future. And that's a spiritual process. And we're doing that together out loud with you. But I was comforted to have some kind of direction for the message I was going to open for you this morning, because on a morning like this, when you're just preaching one sermon, what do you choose out of all of the Bible, out of all of what you could choose? And Providence seemed to choose for me in that uh, I was part of that Zoom call that Gabe mentioned earlier. He was on there as well. A lot of uh, the Gamma pastors I'm sure were on and uh, those with the Master's Fellowship, which really represents uh, independent uh bible churches around the country and even around uh the globe that dial in to um really take on issues that are approaching the church uh, my whole life being raised in a christian in a christian home christian environment there's always been talk of coming persecution but very little teeth to that message in terms of my own experience and i think we haven't seen anything yet in terms of what could be coming, but uh, John MacArthur was leading that Zoom call and uh, was talking about the uh, laws in Canada, specifically related to his connection to James Coates in Alberta, I believe, and and the idea that when you're ministering the Word of God, maybe even more particularly in private ministry, when counseling and talking, and you're trying to exhort someone to be converted to Christ. Uh, that that could suddenly be something that puts you in jail. Uh, the law is against conversion therapy. Conversion therapy is a secular form of counseling where you're trying to tell someone that they need to grasp who they are in terms of um, how they were born. You're born either uh, a man or a woman, and to transition either in your thinking or to uh, to try to move to um, believing you're a different gender or to commit homosexual acts, is a sin. And in secular therapy they're not going to call it sin. They're they're going to say, you know, just come back to uh who you are and how you were born and how you were made. But as soon as you transfer that into the Christian counseling office and and it becomes illegal to say you must be born again. You need to be converted. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from this sin, all of your sins, and in particular, one that you need to be converted from. Um, MacArthur saw fit to call us pastors to talk about this from the pulpit. And the reason we're talking about um, conversion isn't to stand for secular you know, therapy. It's not to reform the government. It's not to keep us out of jail. It's also not to lead with the chin and to get the church in trouble. Uh, The reason that we uh, preach um, and stand for the ability to minister the Word of God for people to be converted from sin is to keep people out of hell, to keep people out of hell. That's how high the stakes are. That's what Satan is trying to shut down. He's trying to weaken our intestinal fortitude, our faith, our boldness to preach the gospel. It is interesting. When I went on to that Zoom call, I was coming back from an appointment Judy had. It was early in the morning at 7 a.m. Alaska time. And I was coming into my office and the call was on at nine o'clock Alaska time, 10 o'clock California. And I pulled my Surface Pro up and, you know, my secretary saying, you know, you got to get on that call. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm part of the master's fellowship, but so are, you know, 50, 60 other people that are on this call. So you have all the little zoom boxes and there's MacArthur up in the corner and he's sitting there, you know, working on his thing and nobody's talking yet. It's that awkward silence of, are we paused or not? And I, I clicked join the meeting. And as soon as I did, apparently my window went right up next to John and he goes, Oh, Jeff Kratz from Alaska. How are you? And I'm like, Whoa, okay. Um, do Am I? Perfectly dressed, uh, you know what am I doing? But just be ready. Be ready. When you zoom, you're you're zooming. You're doing it. But uh, but this church, um, like our church in Anchorage, like other um, truth houses, are standing for the sufficiency and the authority of the Word of God. And Paul said in Second Corinthians four, "I believe, therefore, I speak." We we just we don't hold back when we come to text in scripture that. That are the pivot point between people believing, repenting, and being converted and going to heaven. And if they don't repent and if they don't believe, then they are not converted and they'll go to hell. Well, I thought, how do I tie this stance and this um, sort of position that we're taking together as a church this morning to your individual life? And I was drawn to a passage that I had preached. Um, months ago from um, the Beatitudes, uh, or from the Sermon on the Mount in particular, Matthew chapter 5. I would um, focus your attention to verse 27. I'm going to preach through verses 27 through 30 from Matthew chapter 5. This is where Jesus confronts the world. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus confronts the world. Now I'm going to read the text. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is a text that is targeting uh, the soul of the issue, not just in our world, but even within our churches. There are churches that are compromising on calling sin, sin. They're accommodating sins. They're allowing our culture to become more and more androgynous. Uh, That that culture to seep into the church, and uh, there are people. Um, one author that I knew personally that wrote a book called "Washed and Waiting" that want to sanction um, what what the the church, big evangelicalism, is called the homosexual Christian. Well, that's actually a misnomer. That you can't have someone who is who is committing the act of. Um, lustful intent in their heart and unwilling to kill that dead, unwilling to fight that in their own heart, where they just sanction it with a label and say, well, that's just how I am. I'm a homosexual Christian, and that's just how it's going to be. I'm not saying people don't struggle with all kinds of sins in their hearts. We have to wrestle things. We have to wrestle things to the death and do that together with each other within the body of Christ. I, I understand Christian sanctification, and it is that Call to mortify sin, but when the church begins to just sanction it and say it's okay for someone to have lustful intent, to have this kind of sin remain in the heart, unchecked, unsupervised, not called out, not repented of, that's the kind of sin that will send you to hell. This is the sermon that I've entitled God's Brake Pedal. Um, God's Brake Pedal has to be as strong as the sin we need to kill. And his brake pedal is simply this. I'm not going to mince words. It's hell. It's the threat of hell. Harboring unconfessed sin in your life, whether it's homosexuality or lust or heterosexual lust, whether you're single, whether you're married, um, whatever. If you harbor sin in your life and it goes undealt with and you're unmoved by your sin, then it's telling us something about the state of your soul. Instead of being on the narrow road that leads to life, you're on the wide road that leads to destruction. You're headed off a cliff. The good news is is that Christians can even understand and recognize the the reality of hell and have hell even shake us awake to say, I'm not one of those. And I'm a person who is a sin killer rather than someone who's a passive um, individual believing I'm fine when I'm really not. And I'm headed to hell. Let me put it in maybe a more stark um, reality as an example. Let's say someone commits adultery, physical physical adultery, and um, you know is found out, and even loses the trust of the spouse, and the marriage dissolves. You know, the the relationship with the children are forever damaged and strained. If that person comes to himself like the prodigal son and says, I have sinned. I am, I am the publican that's in the temple beating my chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. As I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, your, your repentance needs to be as notorious as your sin. A person who is standing before the church, perhaps, and saying, I've sinned. I sinned against my wife. I sinned against my family. Please forgive me. Whatever the appropriate context of confession is there. The confession is made even to the spouse, because there was sin this way, vertically, but sin against the family, the children, and, and he still loses everything. Because he has repented, he is far better off than a person who is secretly harboring lustful intent and doing nothing about it whatsoever. That person that repents, that loses everything in this life, is incomparably better off for all of eternity than a person who's harboring secret lust and sin. And secret lust and sin, it 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 eats away at a person's soul and life and joy and happiness and it paralyzes a, a person from serving in ministry in the body of Christ. And so that's the core of what we're talking about. Again, we're not, I'm not preaching for government reform. I'm preaching to to embolden us to go there with people and go with there go there in your own heart with this particular sin because the stakes are high and hell is real hell is real people are cavalier in our culture today media is super cavalier in terms of the predatory nature of what comes on your phone, right? As you're scrolling, things that pop on your screen, things to be resisted, all these allurements and temptations are are causing the culture in the church even to be numb to the insidious, hell-sending nature of lust and sin. People talk about it. They say, well, I would never act on it. People joke about it. This is the the wife swapping culture, the, the joke around about this issue culture when this is sending most people in our world to hell. It's just an important thing to think about. Lust and the sin of lust is sending most of our culture, most of the people around us, to hell. And so that's bad news. But we have really good news because God gives us, Christ gives us kind of a no-holds-barred way to deal with this issue. It's God's brake pedal. It's God's slam-on-the-brakes mechanism for the heart and life of men, and I want to say also women. And this is dealing in particular with men with the eye gate and, and what's happening in the heart. But this is talking about hearts for all. And there's the ear gate with women, and you know, as a pastor, you hear the sad stories about women who who are told enough to for them to compromise. You have the cavalier, so um woman of Proverbs six and seven who is given over to her own lust and her own allurements. You have Romans one, where there's the exchange from natural to unnatural in men and women that give over to levels of sin. Well, what is God's brake pedal like? Well. Exploring a text like this, which we're going to open up in detail, deals with hell. And this is God's kind of coil burner, you know, on the stove, where as a Christian, you're like a child and you 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 almost need to go up to it. And if a child touches that hot stove, there's something forever encoded in the mind of that child, right? Where you just you pull away and go, I don't want to go there. If I were to just casually leave my hand on the burner and forget about it, it would destroy my hand. It would ultimately destroy my life. You say, well, how does this apply to us as Christians? Are we supposed to doubt our salvation? Not at all. We've escaped hell as believers. At the same time, Jesus is dealing very directly with his hearers in this text, followers, disciples, sitting around his feet at the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, if you're someone who is doing this, who is, who is using the law externally and saying, I'm not going there outwardly, but I'm allowing myself to go there inwardly, you're in jeopardy of being thrown into hell, headlong into hell forever. We need to talk about hell. We need to bring it up. Jesus spoke about hell often when he preached. How do we make this practical? This is a lordship passage. Jesus is Lord over our lives. And he's, watch this, Lord over where everyone spends their eternity. Jesus is the Lord over heaven. He's the Lord over hell. Satan is not the Lord over hell. Satan will be committed there forever for fiery torment, along with everyone else who does not confess Jesus as Lord. So this is a lordship text. If you want to deal with lust in your life, specifically men, you need to... Do a gut check and ask yourself, have I yielded myself to Christ's lordship completely? It's a lordship issue. When you go there and you make allowances in your life to look at things or feed on things that you ought not, you are denying the lordship of Christ in your life. And Jesus demands, not some of you, but all of you, all of you, lordship. And so if you're taking notes, what does it take to stop lusting? What does it take to stop lusting? This should have been my men's talk on Saturday morning, but here we go. What does it take to stop lusting? How do you deal with this sin? This is for men, women, boys and girls. Number 1, you have to yield well, you have to yield two secret areas of your life to God. And the first area is your imagination. Your imagination. This text is talking in terms of the imagination. You yield your mind, your heart, your soul, what the Holy Spirit is searching in your life and convicting you of, you yield yourself to God and you're yielding your imagination to God. This is not just yielding your habits, not just yielding what you know, what you have programmed on your phone or not to God, not just what filter you've put on your TV or not to God, um, what commitments you've made outwardly to God or not. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about yielding your imagination. You're yielding the area of your life that only God really knows about. He knows the secret things that are going on in your mind. He knows about things that you're even lying to yourself about and saying that these are not issues when they really, really are. Jesus has authority over our minds. And you see the text in verse 27 is introducing the law in a way that he's been um, discussing in several analogies, several illustrations. I think there are six different ways that Jesus is saying, look, you've heard it said, but I say this to you. You've heard it said one way, but I'm taking it another way. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and those of tradition were trying to make people do more and more. Do more and more. If you do more and more, you'll be fine. How do I escape this sin? How do I deal with this ferocious sin in my life? that's such a discouragement. I need to do more and more. You know, modern day, I need to have more quiet times, more prayers, more service, more this. I need to do more and more. Whereas Jesus is saying, don't think in terms of doing more and more. Think in terms of doing, going deeper and deeper. Don't go external. Dig down internally. Um, verse 19 earlier speaks of the warning of relaxing the law in the ESV. It says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. Relaxing the law is making the law external rather than internal. It's lightening the load. Doing more and more is actually lighter duty. Being a legalist is easier than soul-searching confession to God. Think about that, right? You go to these external places, just do more and more, sign up, Go to the Christian, you know, weekend away and deal with your issue there. And you 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 checked all the boxes and you're good. That's relaxing the law. The law is meant to penetrate our hearts. Remember Paul in Romans seven. Uh, Paul is the Pharisee. of The Pharisees he had done more and more. He had gotten the T-shirt. He was the top of his class. He was he was the sine qua non of the Pharisees. And in Romans seven, he said that sin, verse eight, seizing an opportunity through the commandment of thou shalt not covet, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. When he dealt with the law in a deeper and deeper way and let it mirror, reflect who he really was, he realized that even though he was checkboxing the law, he had not really done the soul searching in his heart where he said, I am undone. Covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And the very commandment, the promised life proved to be death to me. Moralism, it will leave actually the adulterer hopeless because he tries to escape his sin and do more and more and make it right and make it right with uh, someone he has sinned against and nothing is happening. Moralism can also uh, create the delusion that a person that's not really dealing with their heart and their own lust inside, that they're safe, they're just fine because they've done enough. Neither area or approach is safe. The law has to be brought to our hearts. I'm not preaching perfectionism. We're those who live the Christian life and we work out our salvation what? With fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in us, but the will and the work for his good pleasure. He's he began a good work in us, will be faithful to complete it. We're 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 working out our salvation. We're We're practicing godliness. I'm not talking about natural attraction here, and I'm not even relegating this to someone who is um, set in deep-seated perversion. This is just someone who is either willing to deal with the normal Christian life to try to kill sin in their lives, or someone who is giving sanction to their sin, and then maybe even labeling it and saying, I am a this kind of christian i'm a lustful christian i'm a homosexual christian i'm an angry christian i'm a covetous christian those are all misnomers those are the titles that people want and in big evangelicalism you see it kind of it's there Just to borrow uh, you know, analogy and terminology, it's like there's a fault line in evangelicalism between dealing with this sin, calling sin, sin, calling it out, and giving people hope that you actually can be delivered from the power and dominion of sin in your life, Romans 6, versus this is who I am, this is my proclivity, this is how I was born, this is my temperament, I'm different than you are, and God will solve it one day in glory. I want to presume on the Lord with a text like this. Deal with this issue, repent of this issue, or go headlong into hell. First Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, here's a bigger list than just homosexuality. These are things that you cannot be known for. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men, Now, in other translations, I think the New American Standard, that is, nor the effeminate, nor men who practice homosexuality. So it's not just the practice, but that is the fruit of what happens in the heart and those who let their hearts go unchecked. It's not being perfect in your heart. It's just where you just let go. It's just like you're just flipping channels with your life. Just laying back. This is my life. I don't care. I'm just going to just let my life go. That kind of person is in danger, in danger of hell. So what's convicting in this is, is the fact that people are doing it all the time. Look at verse, back to Matthew 5, Jesus' words, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, this is the imagination with lustful intent. Uh, that language there is the idea of looking in an ongoing way, looking towards someone, feeding upon someone, not just a passing glance. This is someone who is given over to this and saying it's okay. That person has committed adultery with her in his heart. They've done it. You see that word already, has already committed that sin. In the Old Testament, Things were very physically defined. Levitical law said that both the adulterer and adulteress, Leviticus 20.10, will be put to death. Leviticus 20.13, both of them have committed the abomination. They'll be put to physical death. Their blood is upon them. Deuteronomy 22.22, a man found lying with the wife of another man. Both of them shall die. Physical death again, a man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Deuteronomy 22.22. These are physical acts with physical consequences in the theonomic government of Israel back then. It was God law that was um, administered. But here with the law of Christ, things are far more severely understood. Um, Physical death would be light duty for committing adultery in terms of being a Christian. Um, You're not getting off the hook just because there's a divorce that takes place. You have to deal with the sins beneath the sin. You have to repent genuinely before the Lord to escape spiritual death, which is hell forever. The requirement of repentance is is here for us. And the good news is that you can be forgiven. That's why this is listed out. That's why this is one of the sins listed that labels our heart that has to be dealt with. We lie to ourselves, don't we? We say we're just fine. Jeremiah 17, 9, the hardest deceitful deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it. 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're deluding ourselves, right? And the truth is not in us. You're not thinking like a Christian at all. You're, you're wrapped up in self-deception. 1 John 1, 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. first John is a litmus test as to whether you are a Christian or not. What defines you as a Christian is 1 John 1, 9. If you're someone who isn't deceiving yourself, verse 8, and deceiving yourself and, and really ignoring God's warning in your life, verse 10, but instead you are first John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's an ongoing confession. And you've heard this, I'm sure, in this pulpit. That word confession in first John 1, 9 is hama It means to say the same thing that God already knows is going on in your heart already. You're not surprising God with where you are. You're not duping him with works righteousness. He knows where you really sit. And he knows that if you just would but say, God, forgive me. I know I've got this issue in my life. I'm willing to tell this person or that for accountability. Help me, Lord. I want to be honest with you. Let's, you know, let's meet together. You are my Lord. You are the only solution in my life, and you are my Savior. That's when the the joy of the assurance of our salvation comes back to us in our secret place of our own hearts and lives before the Lord. So the first area of our life to submit to the Lord is our imagination. The second area is our eternity. Don't presume upon God that your eternity is set if you are stuck in unrepentant sin. That's really what you're doing. You're you're saying, Lord— You're the Lord of my life. You're the Lord of the secret place that nobody else goes or knows about but you. And you're also the Lord of where I'm going to spend the rest of my eternity. Not me. I'm not choosing myself into heaven. You chose me. You saved me. You've got an inheritance laid for me in heaven. You're Lord over that. That's what I'm submitting to. That's what this is. This is a text of submission. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. We're submitting our our imaginations. We're also submitting our futures to the Lord. He has absolute authority over this. Matthew 5, verse uh, 29 is the same um, kind of um, text. If Your right eye causes you to sin, tear it, throw it away from you. It is better to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, verse 30, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Hell is just meant to sober us up. Jesus is pictured as Lord over where people will spend their eternity. Matthew 7, a few chapters later, speaks of this. On that day when they stand before the Lord, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Look at all that we did. Look at all the the spirituality that was part of my life. We prophesied. I spoke for you. I I cast demons out. I understood the, um, the path that I was supposed to be on as a Christian. And then Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Lawlessness, meaning your heart was never changed. You never wanted to really follow and know the Lord Jesus. John 5 speaks of this. um, Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, an hour is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, he's granted to the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Hell is real. People will be raised um, to life or eternal death. They will be fit with resurrection bodies for heaven, for eternity, resurrection bodies for hell, for eternity. The worm doesn't die because the body never fully decays. Um, There is no ultimate um, annihilation of the mind or the physical consciousness of pain. It's there for all of eternity. That's the brake pedal. That's what you got to get in your head. That's where you're, you're choosing. Am I going to look? Am I going to feed on this? Am I not going to feed on this? Am I going to continue to cultivate this relationship with this person that's suggesting things? Or am I going to cut it off? God's brake pedal is, well, do you care about where you spend eternity? Because God's in your head and in this moment, and he's determining where you will go let alone your kids that watch you, your spouse, others. You are the spiritual leader men in the home, and you should be concerned about their eternal futures as well. Like Judas, people are self-deceived. They think they are fine. They're not. Hell raises a couple issues. It brings fear into our hearts. I mean, imagine being in hell and thinking that you were going to heaven all during your lifetime, and then you're there. And you're coming to your senses and that awareness that you were self-deceived. I mean, I don't even trust myself like driving around town without GPS. Why should I trust my eternity to my own consciousness and go, you know, I'm fine. I'm good. No, you have to do business with God. You have to take a text like this to bear to your own heart and soul and say, where am I, Lord? How am I doing? What, What do I care about? Am I... Am I completely submitted to your Lordship in my heart and in my life? Not in a works righteousness, but a soul-searching, repentant way where I'm soft before the Lord and I say I'm open before you. And I understand that you are Lord over my future. A genuine believer will do this. A genuine believer will respond like this. I do see the sin in my life. I do see my own failings. I do see my own self-deception that I need to repent of. But I know i 'm a believer, I know i'm secure, I know no one can snatch me from the father's hand. nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus i 'm his, and he is mine, and so i'm going to kill that sin right? You do battle you go you go after it. a genuine repenter will gouge out the eye or cut off the hand. These are metaphors, origin in church history that early church father took it literally um shouldn't have. He castrated himself. That was outlawed 75 years later. That's bad hermeneutics, bad application. He missed the point. The sin is the heart. The sin is the heart. You can be physically blind. You can be physically handicapped. You can lose, you know, lose use of your hands or eyes and still sin in your heart, right? This is obviously something you need to deal with in your heart life. I'm reminded of a, a friend of mine back in Anchorage. She's a kind of a, a fellow, um, just brother in the Lord. And he has recently gone blind in one eye. And I watched him because I've always thought, you know, if to lose an eye is a significant thing or to lose any of your sensory um, functionality is, is threatening. He's a hunter. Uh, I was with him in his yard and his wife, I think, threw keys to him, you know, just across the yard, like, hey, here's some keys. And his depth perception was gone. And so the keys sort of fell in this way. And I loved what he said with that. Well, I guess that's going to be different from now on because he loves the Lord. He, he, he's able to, in his mind, in his own unique way, not to feel sorry for himself, but to say God's in control and the Lord matters more than my physical body. The physical eye is an amazing um, thing. It, the the material, according to an ophthalmologist I talked to, is made of really, really hard, hard, durable material, the white material of your eye. It's he likened it to concrete. I don't understand how that plays out, but the eye's an amazing thing. It's it's focusing, it's it's a lens that's natural, it's it's colorating things and interpreting things to our own minds. But all of the greatness of the eye is met with the reality of hell here to where we would say, that's even expendable to me if I'm jeopardizing my soul. In other words, I need to go for it. I need to be willing to do whatever it takes to be right with God. The Old Testament law, lex talionis, said an eye for an eye. And in a sense, in the spiritual sense, we're saying, look, I'm willing to give up my eye for this sin. I'm willing to truly repent of what's going on in my life because of this reality. The imagination is amazing, isn't it? Nowadays, I, I've got a son-in-law that I was we've talked about who's studying aeronautical engineering. He talks about rockets, you know, sort of being flung around the moon to get momentum to go farther out into space. He's working through those things. I know that you guys, um, you know, you're located near um, where a lot of people are engineering rockets and and things around here, you have rockets that take off and land in the same place in the same way that they took off. Now it's incredible. Our grandkids might, you know, I can't imagine why colonize somewhere on another planet or something. That would just be dumb, just weird. I just, I that's where the imagination goes wrong. But the imagination is fascinating because as it seems like today, as quickly as someone can dream something up, they're actually doing it. Uh, my wife went in um on a christmas gift with uh with our daughter um for our son-in-law and bought him a drone and you know i he's sitting there at the kitchen table and he's flying over anchorage you know looking at things on his iphone like 2 hours later i would never have a drone if i had a drone i would just crash it immediately you know but but with the imagination we need to be serious about dealing with it not rationalizing it is um, something that we're entitled to use sinfully. We need to deal with it dramatically. Some of you might remember an illustration of uh, an outdoor adventurist named Aaron Ralston. He believed himself invincible several years ago. He, he said he could do anything, um, even all by himself. Outdoors was his second home. April 26, 2003, went to Blue John County or Canyon in Wayne County, Utah. He didn't tell anybody where he was going. He's walking along and he went right down into a crevice and he went down and a small boulder followed him down that crevice, deep connect, um, crevice connecting to the bottom there. And he was virtually unharmed, but his right hand was wedged between the boulder and the crevice wall. So he was stuck. He had supplies on him. He could feed himself, but he could not get his arm out to free himself to climb back up out to safety. And he was sitting there and he was, he was hoping someone would remember where he was. He had come across two women, Christy and Megan, who he had seen earlier that day, but nobody was coming. He wouldn't check back into work till about three more days. And so his boss, Brian, wouldn't come looking for him. Um, as time went on, he been to, began to deal with the situation he was in. His food was running low. Extreme weather could be coming. And at that moment um, of clarity, he began to say to himself, I could die. He began to consider his mortality. He was filming on his cell phone somehow a goodbye message. He was um, just sort of going in, out, in and out of lucidity. He was thinking about his distant family, how he was going to lose seeing them, a broken relationship with his girlfriend. Well, what saved his life? What what, what changed him in and and saved him from that moment? And it's simply this. He came to realize he had a decision he had to make. He was at a crossroads. You either stay down in the hole, in the crevice, stuck, or you begin to amputate what is sticking you down there, keeping you stuck there. You either deal with it or you don't. You either don't deal with it and you die or you deal with it and live. You begin to recognize the fact that his arm was already going to be lost. His arm was already a lost cause, so he pulled his blunt pocket knife out just to be completely gross in this kind of sermon. I mean, why am I doing this? But he began to puncture skin. As he punctured skin, gases were loosed. His, his arm was kind of jellified, and he's going through that. But he recognized his dire situation. He was crying out, saying, I don't want to take my own life. I, I don't want to stay on here and die. I, I want. I'm willing to do what it'll take to deal with what has me wedged in sin. Like a Christian, you have to deal with what's wedged you in your heart, down in the pit, the heart adultery, the secret sin. The details are gross and gruesome. He realized that his arm wouldn't be recoverable. When you repent of sin, by the way, and you cut off certain things from your life, and you tell someone what's really going on inside in a safe Christian context and you begin to repent, and confess your sins one to another, confess your sins to God, guess what? What was cheap thrills and excitement for you in a moment was really deadening your soul. And it's like that dead arm in your life. Guess what? You want to cut that arm off anyway. You want it to be gone. You want to be loosed and freed. And ultimately, that's what he did just to make this even grosser. Um, when he came to Um, cutting his arm and flesh, he came to the bone and realized that the pocket knife wasn't going to go through the bone. So just like in really mortifying sin, he had to make a decision to break the bone. And so he threw his body against the wall and broke the bone and I guess got out and was saved physically. Hell brings us to this same decision point. This is what we're standing for. We need to preach the gospel, and bring it to the crossroads of hell where people understand what they need to repent of. Today in the Christian circle, people don't even know that um, lustful intent is a sin anymore that needs to be repented of or that people can be freed from at all. I mean, your church is called Hope Bible. This is what gives people hope, true repentance, calling sin for what it is and dealing with it at the level it needs to be dealt with it says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's dramatic work. Why do you do that? You're doing it so you're not thrown into hell, verse 29, so your whole body doesn't go into hell. You're committed to not doing it anymore. You're committed to stop starting it up again. You're committed to put the candy bag of your own lust away where you've been eating one after the other and hating yourself for doing that. You're done with that. Look at verse 29, just back up there real quick. It says, If your right eye causes you to sin, what does that mean? You know, there is the physical realm of repentance. Repentance starts in the heart, and we have to kill the sin there. But the fruit of repentance is being willing to not look at certain things anymore. So please hear me to say that the root has to be dealt with. But as you deal with the root, you need to take Like make physical decisions in your life um, and surround yourself with accountability to where your eye won't be tempted to look at certain things or your hands to touch certain things or to go certain places or to do certain things. If you deal with the sin on the inside, it will automatically have a result on the outside. Mortifying sin, I've heard it said this way, is basically starving the sin. You starve it. Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, there it is, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now listen to the warning of Colossians. It's the same warning that Jesus had given. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So when you come to that point where you're going to sin, you say, I'm going to put this in the greater picture of hell, the greater picture of God's wrath. I'm going to put this in, in the context of the fact that God sees in my heart and he's given me a way out. He's given me the pocket knife. I've got the dull knife and I'm going to use the word of God right now and I'm going to quote scripture. The men on Saturday morning were quoting 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God that you do not commit sexual immorality that each person would know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Memorizing passages like these to starve your sin and to put on a a truth in your heart and your mind is the path forward for life. Why do I bring all this up? I'm bringing this up to say, please, as a church, continue to keep the pulpit hot for the sake of people's hearts and lives. People need to come to church and, and sense that there's a heaven and there is a hell and that this, the decision is Christ or the world. Christianity is binary. You are either a Christian or you are a non-Christian, you are a believer, or you are a non-believer. You are on the narrow road um, that leads to life, or you are on the wide road that leads to destruction. You are either a sheep or you are a goat. You are either under the son of God, or you are a son of Satan. It is one or the other. Blurring the lines is just Satan's tactic here through the world system that is invading the church, and we dare not do it. We dare not shrink back from coming to our senses and saying there is a reality of heaven and hell. I, uh, so when I was 35, I was driving in Little Rock, Arkansas, and uh, as an associate pastor driving around, I was 34, I was turning 35, and I uh, was talking to Judy on the cell phone and, and going along, and I saw a Mack truck in front of me. It was a big tree barrier on this sort of uh, country road, and it was a Mack truck, and it was making a left-hand turn in front of me, And I, you know, I slowed down and the, the, the truck went by and then there was another one that came up as I was, as I was continuing to go and it just acted like it was connected like a choo-choo train to the second truck. And I didn't anticipate that it ended up legally being his fault, but, um, I had to slam on the brakes and I'm squealing and locking my brakes and, and beginning to turn like this and this and suddenly, and I've been in situations like that before. But suddenly I began to realize I'm going to hit the side of a Mack truck in my little Saturn. (laughs) I mean, Judy's hearing all of this on the loudspeaker on the phone and and we're just going. And I just remember having this very melancholy thought as I'm about to impact the side of the Mack truck. I'm going, oh, so this is how I'm going to (laughs) die. And this is how I'm going to die. And somehow I, I was directed to hit the gas tank on the side. It crumpled, it spun my car around, airbag deployed, and I basically went away unharmed. I got out and I was like, I became a little bit charismatic. I was like, woo, I'm alive. And these two, my car had spun around. And so I'm facing two old elderly people and they're looking at me like this. And I'm like, yes. I hugged the truck driver. I'm, you know, I'm kind of around there. An ambulance came, the hazmat group came. Judy came in the van. And my older three were our only three at that point. And so, um, you know, Logan gets out. He runs around to give me a hug. It's like a five-year-old. And Riley came out as a six or seven-year-old. And she saw all the fire engines and all the people in uniform and the lights. And she said, this is the best day ever. (laughs) So... I bring that up just to say that moment before impact is really the moment that we all need to have before we choose Satan's path versus God's path. God's path is the way that leads to life. Let's have the joy of the Christian life. Life is messy. It's hard. Um, It's not, and this is a MacArthurism. It's not the perfection of our life. It's the direction of our life. We need each other to grow in grace together. And um, let's stand firm for truth. I love this church because it loves God's word. It stands for truth. We're a no-compromise Christian here and abroad, and we want to stand for God's glory, for the sake of the souls of men and women who need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for Hope Bible Church. Thank you for the edification of the saints, and Lord, the ministry of the Word of God. We thank you for the grace and truth of Christ, and as we sing, I pray that we would find great encouragement And if there are those here who do not yet know you, who've not truly repented or are confused about repenting, I pray that you would grant them the gift and grace of repentance in their own life. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.